0: The Mississippi River is the second longest river in North America, running all the way from northern Minnesota down to the Gulf of Mexico, passing through 10 states on its way. This summer, in two trips, brothers Jared Anderson and Heath Anderson rode what's called the Great River Road, which is a route that follows the course of the Mississippi as it goes through those 10 states. But instead of just following the Great River Road, They chose to add to the adventure by searching for ancient mounds left over from the pre-Columbian era and getting a taste of culture by eating only local food everywhere they dropped their kickstands. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Simon Manical. Simon. Austin Van. Simon Pavey. i Phil. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Fair. i Liz Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the Motobreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. Cyclepump.com And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. My name
1: is Heath Anderson. I live in South Saint Paul, Minnesota, and I teach English as a second language at an elementary
2: school. Yeah, um, my name is Jared Anderson. Um, I'm a psychologist, and um, traditionally I work with adults with uh, usually homeless adults with schizophrenia, and I'm currently not uh, working there, when possibly. Retired, but possibly not.
0: Keith, Jared, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Heath, you mentioned you're a school teacher. You said you teach English as a second language. Where do you do that?
1: Um, I work at a school called Pine Bend Elementary School. And, um, you know, really, we I have students from all over the world, a lot of Spanish-speaking students, but really kids from anywhere. And it's kind of exciting because there's a little bit of travel element just right within the classroom.
0: You mean because people are from all over the world?
1: Right. And so, you know, I'm connected with kids, parents. Um, I've traveled to some of the places they've been from. And, you know, it just, it, it just makes it kind of exciting. My room is decorated with um, paraphernalia from all over the world.
0: You know, the, the, we, we often hear people, who, you know, trying to learn Spanish or another language when they're going on a trip somewhere. What's it like to teach people English? Is, is, do you think that's more difficult than us learning Spanish if you're an English speaker?
1: That's a great question. Every language is has elements that are easy to learn and and elements that are hard to learn. I've spent some time living in Taiwan. I've picked up some Chinese. Um, the grammar is very simple in Chinese. It's a tonal language. That part I have a terrible time with. I don't worry about it, and I just talk. You know, in English, our our um, prepositions are tough. Some of our idioms are tough. Um, so it just. Every language has things that are easy and things that are hard. Um, One of the things that we really focus on, and, and I think about this like when I travel, I really focus on communication, not on grammatical structures. If I say bathroom go need I versus I need to go to the bathroom, it's very understandable and it's going to get the message across. So freeing myself, and I really try to free my students from that need to be 100% 100% correct because communication is the goal of language.
0: That's, that's an interesting, very interesting point because because you can get hung up on those little nuances, can't you? When, you, when you're when you learning something new and you're thinking, boy, if I don't get this right, you know, if I don't get masculine and feminine right, uh, no one's going to understand me. But, but in essence, they will if you get those little chunks.
1: Right. And what it does is it limits the productivity and that's where you're going to get better. So you just got to talk, you got to produce and you'll refine it. I'm still learning English all the
0: time. So because you teach English for a living and and particularly as a second language, do you pick up other languages easier because of that?
1: Some um, Spanish. I can pretty much, and I've never taken a Spanish class in my life. I can pretty much understand because I picked up enough vocabulary. Um, Chinese. But when I've listened to, um, I was in, spent some time in Thailand and I just could not hear and I would try to reproduce it. And that was very difficult for me. Um, So some easier, some harder. I spent some time in Germany that seemed easier, but kind of after maybe a pint or two, it seemed easier.
0: (laughs) You just think you were better after the pint or two. (laughs) Well,
1: or I was more relaxed and
0: willing to try. Oh, I see. Less afraid to make mistakes, but but it's not a big deal to make a mistake, is it? When you're when you're trying to speak someone's language, I think I think everyone's pretty forgiving of that because it's it's nice somebody makes that effort,
2: right? Exactly. Well, I think to speak to our trip in general, um, I'm far too shy to uh, take the risk to uh, learn a language, even which is partly why I think it took Heath to initiate this trip because. Um. I enjoy such things, but it just, it's, I'm just not a risk taker and it just wouldn't be natural for me to make a mistake with language or go on a big trip. But, but I'll certainly follow my brother. You,
0: know? you guys are, are brothers, Heath Anderson, yes. Jared Anderson, but one of you spelled the last name incorrectly. What happened there?
2: Well, Heath kept the incorrect spelling and I went back to our original <laughs> Swedish spelling. <laughs> when I got married, my wife didn't want to be one of a million Susan Andersons. So one of my compromises was for us to, Uh, change your last name to the original Swedish spelling.
0: Mm, And that way people remember you more because you're always correcting them saying, no, 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 that has two Ss. Yeah, 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 a lifetime of annoyance. I should have done that with my name. I should have put two Ms in Jim or something like that.
1: But I thought that was a brilliant solution
0: to your problem, uh,
1: you know, of of wanting the same name, but not wanting to have something so common.
0: Mm -hmm. And it does go back to like, that is an original spelling though. Yeah. Right. Yep. yep. In Sweden.
2: Sweden so it. Jared says. <clears throat>
0: <laughs> oh, there's there's some uh, difference in opinion there. Well, okay. We'll, we'll, well I'll just leave the last name at that. You guys spell your last names differently, but they sound the same when we say it, so that's fine. I'm curious about um your adventures that you guys do now. Now, are you both um, Jared? Maybe I'll start with you. Are 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 you an adventurous person, and and where does this come from?
2: Hmm. I I would say that even more than adventurous, I'm I think. Uh, what I lack in um, intellectual horsepower, I gain in curiosity. And so I'm very curious about whether it's exploring different foods to cook or eat, exploring cultures. Um, just, I think I'm sort of a endlessly curious person. I think traveling by motorcycle, you just get that fulfilled um, on a continuous basis.
0: You said you're, you're very shy though. That, that's, um, that's really working against you, isn't it? To do, to, to be into traveling and exploring and learning well, about it, things like that.
2: Yeah. And I think even more than shy, maybe it's just not a natural risk taker. And so, um, uh, you know, once I'm thrown into the pool, I make the best of it, I guess, you know, it, you know, even in an interview like this is, you know, anxiety provoking to start with, but you know, I'm sure I'll enjoy it by the end.
0: So where, where does this come from a, a specific point in your life, the, that this feeling of reservation or, or shyness or, or, re, um, not willing to take risks is, is this, does it stem from something?
2: No, I think, um, I mean, if you want to go all the way back, you know, there's, uh, I'm like, not well, trying to analyze
0: about, you here. Don't get me wrong. No, no, that's, that's
2: <laughs> a, they talk about high reactive and low reactive babies even, and, and babies that react to, you know, uh, sound and stimulus a lot. Um, tend to be sort of uh, stimulus avoiders later in life, and babies that are low, you know, reactors are people that kind of seek out the the stimulus or the uh, um, you know cliff jumping and such. And so, um, I have no idea if I was a high or low reactive baby, but but I it just feels kind of hardwired. That I'm just not a natural, you know, risk
0: taker. But but if that well, you was say true, that, you, you would be a you, you would have been a, um, a highly reactive baby then.
1: Yeah, you you say that you're not a risk taker, Jared, but yet. Like technology-wise, you're very much an early adopter. And I'm always following your lead, whether it's your Tesla, your research on computer speakers, anything like that. You do tend to adopt early. You're the first person I know that had a smart watch. So many things.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's about curiosity.
0: Yeah. You're not really taking a risk with that, are you? I mean, no. You're, no. But, but the reason I was asking about that is because, you know, people often buy books and things on how to, you know, become more outgoing, et cetera. And, and just when you mentioned about the experiment, which I've, I've heard about this, this research about, about babies and uh, the way they react to sounds, et cetera. If, if that's true, I mean, we're kind of hardwired. We're, we're wasting our time buying these books and, and trying to change our personality.
2: But- But at the same time, you know, I I come from a cycling background and as a a, a mountain bike for many years, you know, starting in the late eighties even. And there was a point when I was about 25 where I just made a conscious choice. I need to take more risks. And I basically said, as long as I'm not going to break my neck or die, I need to go off whatever the cliff jump, you know, whatever the risk was. And I was shocked at how fast my riding skills improved at that point. You know, Mm -hmm. just being willing to take to consciously decide to take more risk and recognize that that doesn't come natural, really improve my skills a lot.
0: We talk a lot about that in rider skills, about how confidence is huge. It's a big part of what we're doing because you can learn the technique, but unless you have the confidence to stand behind it sort of and say, yeah, I, I can do this. That's when you hesitate. And then if you hesitate, you're done right there.
2: Yeah. And my, you know, in my gravel riding skills show uh, my, my fears a lot, <laughs> but, <laughs> technically you're a lot better cyclist.
1: If we're out on our, we have fat bikes and we ride in the winter, you know, and summer, but like on the downhill, I'm the guy riding my brake on the bicycles, but I may be pushing the pace on the gravel road when we're on the motorcycles.
0: Mm. Keith, uh, how about you? I mean, have you always been into doing adventures? Is this something, you know, you've done with your brother your whole life? Where does it come from?
1: Uh, I'm, you know, I think the curiosity thing, that was kind of a buzzword that, that I wanted to talk about. Um, I love doing active outdoor things. In addition to my teaching, I coach um, cross-country running, Nordic skiing, and track and field. And so just being outdoors, doing things, um, you know, winter camping is something we do. And just that, that what's it like out there? What, what's new? And, you know, over the years, accumulating gear makes that very much an option um, because I can just kind of go to my shed and go, oh, this is what I need. And then I can continue or I can go out and do the thing that maybe I've never done before.
0: You mean because you have like, you know, maybe you have a lightweight tent from cycling and then you decide to go backpacking and you just use the same one, that sort of thing. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And, and just to be able to, to reuse the gear and, and kind of the mindset of it. Um, you know, I mentioned that I had lived in Taiwan. Well, part of living there, I experienced, I, I lived in a, an apartment that was kind of being legally built on the top of another building and it had a tin roof and I didn't have air conditioning. So it was really hot. Um, but, you know, being the ski coach, I also really enjoy very cold and just kind of getting that mindset that, Hey, if it's really hot to really cold, I can handle this because I've got some knowledge on it. And then I've got the gear to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that makes me feel um, more confident, like you mentioned. And I, people say, Oh, you're crazy. And it's like, well, no, I'm not really crazy because like there was part of our motorcycle trip where it was really hot down in Louisiana. Well, knowing that at any point we could get off the motorcycle and go into an air-conditioned gas station made it so that we didn't have to be afraid of that. Mm. And I think that leads to the confidence, which leads to the ability to go out and try new things and to have adventures, um, you know, at whatever level that adventure is.
0: You guys have mentioned other activities. How do you get into motorcycling? Is it something you did together?
1: Um, Jared, maybe I can start that. When I lived in Taiwan, I used to hop on a 50cc scooter and it was just a ball. And I tool that around. Um, Then I came back to Minnesota. My uncle had a Harley Davidson. I think it was a fat boy. And one time he said, well, you want to ride it? And I said, well, yeah. And I knew how to, you know, run a clutch and things. So I took that for a ride. But we have a friend, Steve Ringett. Um, We call him Uncle Steve. Steve uh, bought a DR650 probably three years before we did. And he would talk about it and the trips that he did. And then one night we were hanging out at another friend's house and he said, well, take the DR out for a ride. After I did that, I was kind of hooked. And it was just a nighttime ride around Minneapolis. And, you know, I bought one. And then, Jared, I know a year later something, you bought one.
0: And is that because you guys always do adventures together? No one else will do stuff with us. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: so. What is wrong with you guys? <laughs> well,
1: Jared, I you're definitely this now. <laughs> I'm, I'm out in Red Lodge by
2: myself. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, we're going to take just a quick break. I'm going to tell you about a couple of things. But when we come back, we've got some more laughs and uh, a great story. Stay with us. You know, you find in life that some things just work. Well, I tend to gravitate towards those things. You know, they just do their job. Well, that's Pearly's Possum Socks to me. As a matter of fact, if you told me five years ago that that now I would be getting excited about owning and wearing a pair of socks, I would have laughed at it. But ever since I met Duke Lambert, the owner of Pearly's Socks, when he first sent me his socks to try, I've been a fan. They're made using a blend of merino wool and possum fur. Now, I'd never even heard of this before I met Duke, and you know, frankly, I, I wasn't that excited about it when I heard about it. It's when you wear them that you realize what it's all about. The socks are full, they're durable, they're soft, they're very warm. And you know what it's like with your feet. Once your feet get cold, good luck getting them warm again. Now, I even wear them in the summertime because they feel so good on my feet. And as an added bonus to the insulation value of the, of the possum fur and merino wool is plushness and comfort. Now, I've used merino wool for years. It's great. It wicks away moisture um, from your skin. It stays warm even when it's wet. And most importantly to me, a lot of times is it doesn't stink like most fibers do, you know, when you sweat on them after a while, especially wearing them in your boots. Well, this blend of merino wool and possum fur, that takes it to another level that I didn't even know was possible. Have a look for yourself. Socks.com is a website. Duke is the owner. It's a family owned business. So you're dealing with the people who own the company and, and care about you as a customer. Socks.com. Don't forget to throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Overland Expo Mountain West is coming up fast. It's being held this year, 2021, in Colorado, Loveland, Colorado, at the Ranch Events Complex. Now, Overland Expo has grown tremendously over the years into this huge event for all overlanders. It's a weekend packed with things to do, learn, and participate in. Their motto, get trained, get outfitted, and get inspired to explore the world. Now, the folks at Overland Expo are saying that this is the greatest collection of overland adventure companies in the world with over 300 vendors. And through that, you can outfit your motorcycle or your whatever rig you have for your next adventure. You can build your off-road confidence. They've got interactive driving courses, seminars, and training. And at an event like this, you're mingling with all walks of Overlanders. What a place to get inspired. They've got authors, filmmakers, and other travelers hosting workshops and classes and sharing their stories from the road. It's all going on August 27 through 29 this year, 2021, the Ranch Events Complex in Loveland, Colorado. Now to get your tickets and camping passes, you got to go to overlandexpo.com. Get those tickets in advance, overlandexpo.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We have a regular feature on Adventure Rider Radio called Rider Skills, where we learn tips and methods to improve your riding skills. Now, just ask any good mechanic, And they will tell you there's no substitute for quality tools. And when it comes to riding, one of those tools, or two of those tools, I guess, are your foot pegs. Quality foot pegs don't just look cool. They're designed for a specific use. And that is what IMS Products did with their line of Adventure Motorcycle Foot Pegs. Quality foot pegs like IMS's ADV1s and ADV2s give you the added leverage for better maneuvering your motorcycle. Really important when you're in the dirt, or in particular when you're loaded and in the dirt. And they have the durability to survive tough environments, which is what we do when we're riding our motorcycles in those environments, and to keep your feet planted where they should be. IMS Products does their research too, because they design their foot pegs in ways so that the, uh, the geometry of your foot position works for your shifter and brake levers. And these aren't minor considerations. These are the makings of a quality product. IMSproducts.com is their website. Don't forget to throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com.
2: I think part of the beauty of the DR650, our you know our friend Steve, we call him Uncle Steve, just because it seems like every hobby he gets into, the rest of us sort of sort of follow at some point because he sees the future. But I think part of the beauty of, the, of four of us having the DR650 is they're simple enough for us to work on, which is really one of the joys of the bike is um, being able to do our own work on it. Um, but also just the shared experience of us all having the same bike, um, and it really fits um, where we want to ride as well, which is a little off-road if we can find it, but also, you know, on-road, so.
1: Yeah, we're not going to be shredding the off-road, you know, we're not going to be doing any Chris Birch imitations, you know, nor are we going to be on the, you know, moto circuit on the Isle of Man, you know, we're just kind of old guys that kind of putt-putt on-road and putt-putt off-road, and that one big cylinder just works really well for that.
0: Well, you mentioned when you rode the DR, you sort of thought that that was for, that was for you, but you rode the Fat Boy before that, and, and like you chose the DR over that. Is it because of the adventure portion? Is that what did it?
1: Yeah, and I, I think the practicality of it, I would, knew that I would want to ride on gravel roads. I knew that I would want to go. Um, we have the a beautiful Paul Bunyan State Forest up in northern Minnesota. Ride on the fire roads there. Um, you know, do some commuting with it it really is just kind of an all around bike that you know i for 3 years i rode it to school at least one day a month all year long you know there were a couple of times in january where i would literally get up really drive it to make sure that i wasn't going to kill myself on ice <laughs> is this in minnesota and ride the dr um yeah Wow. And, you know, and it was just a lot of fun. You know, it wasn't obviously if I drove to work and to make sure it was safe and then went home and rode the motorcycle, it wasn't about practicality. It was just about playing around, having fun. The kids thought it was hilarious.
0: Yeah, I'm sure.
1: And, you know, just, just being fun.
2: You know, I, I've been trying to upgrade the motorcycle for two or three years and, um, and I just can't find anything that, you know, other than having anti-lock brakes, you know, some of the new... You mean new, upgrade to a different motorcycle? Yeah, I'm sorry, to a different motorcycle, yeah. Um, you know, other than some of the new electronic stuff, I just can't find anything that really fits what I want any better than that bike. I'm having a hard time finding something.
0: Well, I think a lot of DR riders would would not understand <laughs> your, your statement there. You're trying to upgrade. How can you upgrade? <laughs> yeah, You've well, already... You've I, already- no, what, what, You've got the DR650. What are you going to upgrade to? There's nothing, that's yeah, it. No, you know, that's, and that's the what I'm discovering. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you mentioned about the simplicity because you can work on it.
2: Yeah, so at our, you know, I weigh, you know, 260-ish. Um, and so we replaced all the, you know, both the shock springs and the rear springs in it. Um, that was probably the biggest job. What mm-hmm. else have we done, Heath? We did our valves. We did. We uh, did
1: valves. We did the.
2: Oh, the neutrals, what is it, sending, sending safety unit? unit. Yeah. But you have to pull apart the clutch and such for that. So we have a lot of confidence on it, which helped on the ride also, you know, knowing that we could tackle most stuff if it
0: came up. You just mentioned uh, the ride. This is the, the. Uh, I mean, I guess I could call it the Great River Road ride. Where um, you guys uh, covered thirty four hundred kilometers, or sorry, thirty four hundred miles, which is about fifty five hundred kilometers. Uh, I guess just under fifty five hundred kilometers. Uh, Heath, do you want to set that up and, and, and talk about that? What What was the idea, and how did that come about?
1: Sure. I live uh, in South Saint Paul, Minnesota, overlooking the. I'm probably four hundred yards from the river bluff, uh, overlooking the Mississippi, and you know I. I think the river's cool. I love to see the barge traffic on it. I had looked at several YouTube videos uh, like Ingram Barge Company and Marquette Barge Company, just imagining what it'd be like to ride down on, you know, as part of the barge crew, you know, playing my Tom Sawyer. And, you know, then I realized, oh my gosh, there's a motorcycle, or not a motorcycle, there's a road that goes along it, which Turns out, and I didn't even realize it. I ride on part of every day on my when I ride my bike to my school. Um, they just I didn't recognize the little green
0: sign. Oh, it's, a, it's so, a dedicated road like to the river. Is that what it is? It's it's sort of a river route.
1: It, it's a river route. There's green signs. It's it's actually a national scenic highway um, that goes through ten states where there's a kind of a uniform sign that goes that that shows the way. So the, the trail is a thing, um, that we followed and I got the idea to ride it on motorcycle, probably three years ago. And then last year because of, uh, COVID, um, wasn't able to do it And this year. I just kind of decided, you know, this is a year to do it. And then Jared said that he'd be interested in doing it with me. Um, and then we kind of got the secondary idea of hitting some of the ancient Native American sites, or as you know, Canadians would say, First Nations people sites.
0: Yeah, this was sort of sparked by a book you read by Charles Mann,
1: right? Fourteen ninety one. And Jared, if you want to talk about that, because like you're the one that got me to read the book.
2: Yeah, and I mean, we're certainly Noah. Uh... Historians, so to take everything. That yeah, we're not scholars. Thing. <laughs> it's more of a you know, we have enough knowledge to understand what we're reading, but not enough to necessarily teach it. But but fourteen ninety one is is um, uh, you know a book about the Americas right before Columbus came. Um, and and the the two main points I would say from it are one that the Americas were much more populated than than we we sort of thought before then also sort of to dispel the myth of the noble savage, um, for, for native people that they really did have agency and really did affect their environment. Um, um, and, and, um, yeah, we an active part in managing the environment rather than just sort of being these, um, noble people, you know, riding the wave of nature or something. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the mound building cultures along the way, um, that are, you know, from what was it like roughly 3000 years ago, you know, up until maybe 1500 really show, you know, how much they can impact their land and how much, um, how many people, you know, I I saw at one point uh, Cahokia, which is outside of St. Louis, um, possibly had more people in it at one point than London. Um, Yeah. I I did look at a
1: source, Jared, that in 1250, it was more populated than London. was.
0: You're talking London, England? Yeah.
1: London, England. And this was a major metropolitan area. Um, I, you know, was sort of a product of the old school teaching of history. I graduated from high school in 1983, where, you know, Columbus discovered America. It was an empty land. And, you know, Charles Mann and, and just kind of these mounds really show, hey, this was not an empty land. You know, people really did live here and they had a lot going on.
0: Mm hmm. And Charles Mann, in this book, he, he one of the reasons he wrote that is just for that very reason, because he was brought up the same way. He had learned history, you know, the way that most people learned it, as if the, there was nothing much going on, and then found out later that there there was quite an advanced civilization that was already existing there.
2: Yes. Yeah. And, I, and so I'm so excited to hear of and learn of even more um, archaeological finds in relation to that. Um, and so it was. It was great to just stand in the place where you know people for from so long ago um, worked and lived, and and just kind of connecting with them, I guess, as humans.
0: Heath, I think you'd said that some of these places were as cool as Stonehenge, but underappreciated. What did you mean by that?
1: If I know about Stonehenge because I've seen it in magazines, it you know if you just looked at it like, okay, they stacked some rocks. It really only takes significance when you kind of understand the cultures and the people and maybe the reasons why they built it. Same with these ancient mound sites. You look at it and go, okay, it's a big pile of dirt. But if you really consider the, you know, the context in which it was built that, you know, some kind of high leader lived on the upper part of it, you know, there was a system of agriculture needed to to have the workers to build it. You know, in that context of culture, time, place, people, it is really significant. And yet, you know, again, I grew up where I never learned about this stuff at school. Um, I still don't see this stuff as being part of our curriculum. And and maybe now in the secondary level it is. But I just feel like it's these, this amazing part of our, our people, our place, our country that is not spoken about and was even knocked down and actively destroyed.
0: yeah just for context talk about that mound like how big what is this mound you're talking about? Uh, so
2: the one in Cahokia um, and, and a lot of the numbers you'll get different numbers for both ages and sizes and such so take it with a bit of green salt but it's between 80 and 100 feet tall and the base is roughly 200 by 300 meters. And so this is a giant mountain. I believe it's the tallest, um, you know, man-made structure, you know, in the in North America, um, you know, at that time. And so, it's it's impressive, and especially since that you know there were no beasts of burden, you know, no horses at that time to build them either. So it was people bringing baskets of dirt to to um, place these. And so that's the the largest one, um, Poverty Point in. Um, Louisiana, in Louisiana. Yeah, that one is fascinating because it's built. Um, it, it was built like sort of a um, what, what would you say? Almost like an amphitheater, but not right. Not terraced, but you um, know, with like kind of like concentric mounds circling a central focus point. Yeah, that were basically like you know where people would all have their homes. But this was a massive complex um, at about a thousand um, BCE. And it was, the interesting thing about Poverty Point is they were still hunter-gatherer society at that point. So to have this huge city-like complex and and still be hunter-gatherers, I think is really fascinating to me.
1: And one of the amazing things is these mounds are everywhere. Yeah. Um, at least along the Mississippi River Valley. And I would suspect, you know, sites outside of the Mississippi River Valley. Yeah. If wherever you are, you can probably find... Uh, a mound site. There's one in St. Paul, just probably as a crow flies, three, four miles from my house. That's 3,000 years old. So this was a contemporary of Poverty Point in Louisiana. So people were traveling and trading from Louisiana to Minnesota, uh, even having um, obsidian that was probably from Yellowstone 3,000 years ago. And it was going on a long time before that.
0: Obsidian being a rock that they use for making knives and, and spearheads and things like that with because it's very sharp.
1: Right, a volcanic glass.
2: Then.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does this all uh, tie into you and, and this motorcycle trip? Well, uh, Heath, do you want to?
1: Yeah, it's you know it's it's the imagination. Um, as I'm you know sitting on the motorcycle, we don't have intercom. You know, just kind of the the the, the drone of the dr. But to look at this site and just kind of always have this in mind, you know, huh? how would people live there then? And for me, being from the north, even to see how people live there now in the south, because it's different than the way it is. So it's about, you know, sitting there, I'm connecting past and present, you know, thinking about future, um, seeing some of the dilapidated buildings in the southern United States, um, I, It's very expanding as far as my knowledge of my, the country that I live in.
0: And you came up with some, some parameters or goals that you, that you had for the trip. Can you talk about those?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the goals was that we wanted to hit some of these Native American sites. And then we also wanted to um, eat good regional food along the way, avoid the McDonald's and things and just see what they had to offer.
0: So not necessarily indigenous food, just just regional food as it is now, contemporary. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and you know, as far as indigenous food, there isn't it, it's really hard to, you know, like I don't know of there's a there's a guy who wrote a book, um, the Sioux chef, and that's spelled as Sioux, like the the Dakota
0: people. Right.
1: Um, but I you know, I don't know if a Native American restaurant Anywhere in the United States, I don't know if you have them in Canada.
0: No, no, it's it's not. That's why I was curious where you would find something like that. But I, um, but I, I see what you're doing now. And the and the thing I, I find intriguing about this is because I love this for a trip. You can take any trip. No, you know, no matter how close to home. This was obviously close to, close to home for you, Heath and turn it into something by, by making a point of it, you know, like making a, a goal or, or making some sort of theme as an, I think we did it in an episode or not I think we did do an episode on it some years back on having themes to your trips. And, and it's a way to turn something into, you know, something special because you would otherwise ride by and not even notice this. So you built this into a theme that this this was your thing. You were, you were going to sort of explore the the early native life, or, or what what you could find out about it on the way, and you're going to eat local foods as you go. What what um, is the um, the geography of the trip? Sort of distance and an area.
2: You want me to speak a little bit? Heath, sure, the, go uh, ahead. Well, you know, I could I, I um the the river itself was fascinating to see the different landscapes along the way. Um, I think the most beautiful site, certainly, and I'm probably a little biased, are up in Minnesota um, and uh, in Iowa. Um, that section, really, the, um, the bluffs are pretty high on the sides of the river, and the river's you know, pretty well contained in it. And then when we got um, sort of, uh, you know, in the middle, lower, um, third it's this beautiful place where there's like five to 10 miles of perfectly flat land with those sort of bluffs on the, on the either side of the river then, and, and you know, it's just all farmland um, in that perfectly flat area. And that was gorgeous in its own sort of way. And then the very lower part, um, you know, we did a whole lot of riding with a levee. <laughs> and so you, you didn't see the river a lot. You saw a lot of levee. Um, but so but that were,
1: was, if I can just jump into it, yeah. that was amazing in itself you know as as we're looking at these ancient mound builders who manage their own environment, and then we followed this levee for hundreds of miles that's a modern mound yeah. to manage the environment right um you
0: know that to me that was one of the things that connected past and present, so is it three thousand four hundred miles one way or is that a round trip? Oh, that's round trip that's round trip, yep,
2: and
1: that was from St Paul to um, I can't remember that this, where the, the end of the road. So this is about, what was it here? 90 miles
2: no, south it's over hundred. I think it's over a hundred miles south of New Orleans, which I didn't know either um, beforehand that the road continues on for a long ways past New Orleans. Yeah. And
1: it, it was very cool down there with houses up on 30 foot stilts for hurricanes
0: and so th- this original trip though this thirty four hundred kilometers fifty five sorry fifty five hundred kilometers of thirty four hundred miles, you're you're packing up two dr six fifties. You're not both leaving from the same spot, are you?
2: Uh, close uh, 30, 40 miles apart. Oh, so. Okay,
0: so you, you load up yeah. your dr six fifties on your own. What what are you what are you doing to prepare? I mean, there's no, it's not really um, you're not you're not going anywhere into the wilds here, are you? You're pretty much sticking to to main areas, main arteries. You know,
2: there's almost two thoughts to that. You know, we found times near the river at least i think if we were on interstates what i'm about to say wouldn't be true at all but where we were next to the river we actually had troubles finding gas at times we couldn't find an inner tube heath had one flat and we couldn't find an inner tube for uh, what was it a day or two um we couldn't find a shop right because we were off the beaten track following kind of you know the the little roads along the river mm -hmm. but you're right in that but you know worst came to worst we could you know drive somewhere and buy things.
0: Well, just you mentioning um, you're looking for a tube tells me that you, you didn't take spare tubes with you.
2: Uh, uh, no, we did. Um, he got the flat, but once we used the one, you know, the one uh, front tube, I think it was he. Oh, I see. You know, we it wanted, was a rear. It was a rear. Oh, yeah. We wanted to make sure we replaced it then. Right. You know, right away. And um,
0: Heath, that made me think of, um, you had some little issue with your your tire because I guess you had installed it yourself?
1: <laughs> well. This is a classic Heath and Jared difference. Just, just between us, um, Heath,
0: I'm like, I don't want to make a fool of you. So just tell us the story. We no, won't, that's we won't why, tell anyone. I, I, I'll do
1: myself. <laughs> <laughs> Jared would persevere about getting the tire just right, and he, it would be just right. Well, me, I just kind of jump in and I do it, and but Jared has the balancer, so I actually put the tire on, went, brought it over to Jared's. Um, with my car, and then I balance, and it's like, man, this takes a lot of wheel weights. Oh well, I got to balance good enough. Well, as we started riding, you know, I just kind of noticed it sort of had this hop in it, and it just <clears throat> wasn't getting better. And um, so we did when we were in search of a tube. We pulled into a shop. They just they said, "Come here, look at this." They pulled me in the back and said. Your tire isn't balanced. You rode a thousand miles this way. It's
0: like, <laughs> yep. It's not balanced because it wasn't seated properly. Is it that what wasn't it wasn't
1: seated properly? So that and so, so it's really they, it's they oblong
0: its, shaped, like it's it's it's, <laughs> it's lobe shaped rather. Yeah,
1: anyone can ride a round
0: wheel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but but you know, again, we're getting stuff ready. I'm willing to make mistakes. You know, obviously that was one that a little bit more due diligence would have prevented. But, you know, what the heck? The guys at the shop got a good laugh, but, but it did, it was a little smoother. The second part of the trip.
0: I'm sure. So what was the ride like? Did you guys have any problems with this? Was was there any difficulties you get in any bad areas where you found things were tough and and you had to change your direction or anything? Hmm. Well,
2: heat was an issue. heat when we Um, wear full gear um we wear uh you know uh aero stitch products which i which we loved um mm -hmm. i just can't say enough about that which is if anyone doesn't know what they are it's basically just a shell there's no lining there's no mesh no nothing it's just a a gore-tech shell with uh i don't know what the material is on the outside but and so under under normal even very hot conditions um it feels like you're under a shaded tent with wind blowing through the jacket and you just it it feels great. Um, but when you get to a certain, you know, humidity level at certain temperature, you don't get your evaporative cooling. And then it feels like you're in a snowmobile suit. Uh.
1: Yeah. So heat, I think, was the, the biggest problem. And, you know, knowing that we were heading for Louisiana, you know, in the third week of June wasn't ideal. But as I said, I'm, I'm a track coach. And I had a a group of some kids that were going to our state meet, which was postponed in the summer a little bit because of COVID. And so, you know, I wasn't going to miss those kids competing, you know, for anything. So that's why we left when we did.
2: And those bikes, you know, we can only go about 100 miles, uh, you know, safely at least um, before we need gas. But on those bikes, we're pretty ready to be off the bike you know, for a few minutes, every hundred miles also. So we started, you know, the days were divided up by how many gas fills we're going to do. And, and really, you know, we were out on the road for probably eight hours a day. And, and at that only covered about 300 miles. And so, um, yeah, the roads, we weren't buzzing down interstates.
1: Some of the roads had 30 mile an hour speed limits.
2: Yeah. And some was gravel and some was, um, it, and, and sometimes we had to use our own navigation skills to kind of get ourselves to not drive through, you know, two hours of St. Louis or something, you know, on, on, on city streets. That go around sort of, it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so we got a little smarter about that as it went on also, but we were, I was pretty darn tired at the end of each day. You know, we would, our, our father always uh, says his father's line, which is, you know, if you want to be productive, you know, start early and keep at it. And that was sort of a theme to us. We'd start early and, and keep at it but um so with a few exceptions we'd be done by four-ish in the afternoon but i was i was very done to be ready to be done at that time
1: you know despite being tired i was always kind of looking forward and excited to get onto the bike and get moving again in the morning yeah. i i the heat was a little bit of a factor but i did not you know there was never a point where it's like oh gosh this ride's going on forever um, and we did more miles and you know maybe ideally I would like to do mm-hmm. um, it'd be nice to maybe stop but that was sort of the time frame that we had and we made made it go
0: did, did you have 11 days was that the time frame
2: we had 14 and and it kind of felt like you know you, you always kind of get into this mileage uh pushing mindset sometimes you know I mean I had to find myself you know not wanting to just get a few more miles a day because then you kind of rush yourself through your trip yeah. Uh, But at the same time, you don't want to fall behind on it either. So if we wouldn't have finished in the the roughly 14 days, we had allotted. So we'd finish it sooner. But, um, you know, things probably went better than they could have also. So
0: what was the destination that you were driving towards? I mean, why not just ride less and just turn around at the halfway point sort of thing?
2: Oh, well, we wanted to do the complete length, you know, right to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that was sort of an ultimate goal is to get to that and then we got within a mile of of the there's literally the road ends there's a you know a sign even that says the road ends. we get within a mile of it and the road is flooded out you know and then, and, and and looking back you know we got our feet a little wet so it wasn't even that deep but you don't know that until you go into the water and hate to you know killer bikes, you know, a mile from the end. <laughs> so I made Heath go first. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: Good plan. At least for you. One of my
1: goals was to see a live alligator. I was not looking forward to seeing one while I was in the water. Yeah. Beside
0: your bike swimming along <laughs> yeah. beside your bike, of course. So did you make it the the last mile?
2: Yes. Yes. Yep. We did. And, and again, like I said, looking, you know, after you go through water, it's easy, but before it, it's, it's scary. <laughs> One of my favorite um, points of the trip was m- meeting a, a native woman right at the headwaters um, there. I don't know if that's something you'd be interested in hearing about. But- yeah.
0: I, well, I was going to ask you that because I, I was thinking here, you know, you'd mentioned in particular that about how your interest is in, in culture. That's what's one of your interests and, in, in uh, learning about the culture, et cetera. And I think it's for you too, Heath, isn't it?
1: Very much so. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what I do every day. And, and I thought it was wonderful that this woman, Kind of came up and approached us.
0: Well, well, let me just say, for like for the the trip itself. I mean, because you even mentioned you're going to go and you're going to eat local foods, and that certainly gives you. um, Well, I'm just going to say a taste and and how cliche a taste of of um, the local area. But a lot of times when people go places, they don't want to try the local food. They want to eat the, the food they're used to, you know, like the McDonald's burger or, or whatever the case is. Um, but certainly doing that gets you a little bit better connection. But but what are the other ways that you can, that you find that you connect with culture? Like, is it just seeing it or is it meeting someone like this, this Karen that you met?
1: Well, I think meeting people, um, you know, one thing when two of us were together, I don't think as many people approached us as if we would have done the trip you know, solo. Right. Um, but um, a, a young man I met, a 23-year-old named Ray Ray, who I met in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Ray Ray was just absolutely intrigued with the bike and our trip. And um, he was working a blue-collar job down there, you know, a young African-American guy. He's not somebody that I probably would have spent time visiting with in other parts of my life. But yet he and I had this wonderful conversation and connection multiple times because I kept seeing him outside the hotel about my bike and about our trip. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the things that make it special. For me, the South is a completely different culture, you know, just eating hush puppies you know, drinking sweet tea, all of that is new and different and
0: exciting. And not all that far away, like in the big scheme of things.
1: No, it's sort of like the, I don't need to go to Asia to have the kind of experience that I can have right in Tennessee or Mississippi, a thousand miles
2: south. You know, but that being said, you know, when we were right in Memphis, that It felt different, but it wasn't that different from Minneapolis. But when we were right along the river, it felt really different from even other places in the south I've been.
0: You mean away from the city?
2: Meaning, you know, since we weren't on, yeah, away from either larger cities or even the interstate, you know, Mm -hmm. paths. um, You know, one of my goals in all of my travels is to go to places where there aren't any other tourists. I mean, because, you know, otherwise you're just doing a trip, to see other tourists rather than to actually go to a place where there are people different from you. And so I would rather see less amazing sites, um, to see more regular people. And, and, um, one of the places to open our eyes in Southern Illinois is I I don't know if they pronounce it Cairo or Cairo, but it's right where the Ohio and Mississippi river come together and the town had its heyday. I don't know, at least a hundred years ago, would you say Heath? But, um, now it was like a post-apocalyptic movie. Um, it was really sad to see, um, uh the state it was in and it shocked me how different it was
0: what's it look like
2: well there wasn't a gas station in the whole city yeah and the um yeah just all you know that you could tell it just had this beautiful rich rich history um and it was just um completely run down um we had a really nice lunch there but and met a very sad firefighter who i think um, um who gave us a little bit of the history of the city
0: yeah how did you meet him
2: you just happen to be having lunch there also. Um, oh. So we met some of the nicest people, you know, if I, you know, some of the places we saw were, were full of poverty and, and we may seem a little down on, but really the people were wonderful. And if, if I feel anything, it's, you know, maybe just a sadness that they don't have, um, you know, more of what they deserve, I guess. good. When you're
0: sitting there in the restaurant having your lunch, do you, do you approach somebody like that or, or do they end up asking you what you're doing and the conversation goes from there?
2: I don't remember with him specifically, but it could be something as simple as, you know, is there, do you know where gas is near here? Because I think we were bought out of gas at that point and just assumed we would for sure find gas in a town of that size. Um, And then we can pick it up from there pretty, you know, pretty quick. Um, But I got a feeling that, you know, the majority of his uh, fire calls were, uh, were insurance arsons probably, but. (laughs) it's oh, really? <laughs> sort of the feel of what it was. Wow. I mean, I I'm not saying that is true, but but that's sort of the feel of what the um
0: town was like. You said it was run down this this Cairo or or, or not sure how you pronounce Cairo, it.
2: Cairo, I think the locals may pronounce it differently than Cairo but.
0: Okay. So uh, describe what it looks like though when you when you ride in.
1: Um, um it when I like kind of close my eyes and I look at it, I think of um things from like the this 1970s and 80s that have not been painted, um, roofs that were literally falling in, there were burnt out buildings. it
2: yeah. it, it really it, it looks ruins. sad and tragic.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and why do the people stay there now?
2: Well, and that was something you know that that we noticed quite a quite a lot down the river, especially on the east side. Um, it just felt like. Um, it, you know, if there were um, young, it lucky, bright people, they it felt like they all kind of moved out, I guess. And so that was kind of sad also to see. Yeah, it really gave me a different
1: perspective on the United States uh, to see that level of decay.
0: Talk about um, meeting Karen. What, what Set that story up. Can I start it out, Heath? Please do. Yeah. So when you get to
2: the headwaters of the Mississippi, there's a Lake Itasca and then there's about, what is about 20 or 30 feet of little rocks. And then the lake drains into a little Creek, which is the Mississippi then. And you have to walk a few hundred feet, um, you know, from the parking lot to that spot. And as we're walking on this trail to the headwaters, this, um, angry person, about 65 year old, um, of native descent, um, it is marching at us and, and to anyone who will listen is, is, um, talking about the, the wild rice and that it's being choked out and they won't let us harvest it. And having worked in mental health for a while, I, you know, I, 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 um, I stepped back a little bit, but I was also sort of intrigued and we, and we listened to her talk a bit about it. And then we quickly learned, um, uh, that she's a very bright person and she was, Frustrated because the the wild rice that's right in, at the lake, right where it joins the Mississippi, was being kind of choked out. And we ended up going and seeing the you know look to the headwaters, and we came back and we talked to her again. And in the press of her talking to us, um, we discussed her love for hand harvested wild rice, which is which is incredible. Um, and then she came around, and it became very obvious at that point just what a bright, uh, wonderful woman this was. And she let us know her name was Karen. Um, And she was a little less angry at that point, but um, it was wonderful to um, hear her stories of how she was part of the people that planted the wild rice at the headwaters in 1969, I believe she said. Um, And that um, was such a great story. And then she talked about how um, people still plant wild rice in lakes, but they claim the ducks do it, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, which was wonderful. But so sort of to acknowledge um, and, and validate her anger um, and, and be a joker, knowing that she could take it. Um, I, I, you know, I, and oh, and she talked about, you know, possibly even selling us some, some wild rice that she happened to have, you know, at her home. i um, not that she normally sells it. I don't think, but, but, and that's where I, I said, well, you know, you're kind of a wild rice Karen. And she, uh, she very much liked that joke. <laughs> so, so it was all a good a good piece. But what a wonderful connection at the headwaters to meet a person who literally, you know, helped plant the wild rice at the headwaters and a person of native descent. So well, it was and, wonderful. And,
1: and again, even sort of the, the outrage at the um what was she talking about? The the roots were binding. I can't remember. Yeah. But it but again the active management of the land, yes. what mm-hmm. we would assume would be wild.
2: Um, yes, that's
1: well and, said. And, and that just kind of tied everything together from the Charles Mann book on.
0: Where does the wild rice come from? Do you know? Like, is it is it already an indigenous species in the area that they're just taking and cultivating? That's my assumption, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that about- it's, a, it's a
2: grass seed. Yeah. That grows in the lakes. Yeah.
0: It's not really rice, is it? I mean, as
2: the rice no, that we know. I don't believe so. Yeah, but, a, the, but I mean, as she said, they actively planted in different lakes mm-hmm. you know, also. No, the ducks did it, Jared. She <laughs> yeah. said. <I> mean, <laughs> she told us it was the ducks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. is <Kierna's> great.
0: <laughs> so it, it, when we, were, we talked about, you know, you being interested in these mounds, et cetera, back at the start, are you searching out natives to speak with? Are you searching out um, bands to stop at? Do you, was that part of the trip?
2: No, because I, um, partly, you know, in relation to time, it became challenging. But also, you know, for a few months before the trip, you know, I tried to look at every YouTube video I could about the different mound sites and the peoples, and and I didn't see a whole lot about different tribes and areas. And I'm sure that they exist, um, and I and I just didn't look hard enough, possibly. But it, it wasn't uh, glaring in our face at all how to connect with with current natives there.
1: Well, and one thing that the the Mississippian culture and these cultures from 3,000 years ago are, are vastly different than the modern and continuing to evolve Native yeah. American cultures. Mm-hmm.
0: What other big takeaways did you guys have from the trip, you know, even including your bikes and yourselves?
2: Well, well I have one that uh, I don't know, I popped into my head, but yeah, before you ever go on a trip, whether it's, you know, um, Bike packing or a motorcycle trip, you always hear, you know, bring half of what you, you know, take half of what you packed and, and, and get rid of it. Right. Um, but the, but what I kept thinking about that is the only person who would know what to have to get rid of would be someone experienced enough to not overpack in the first place. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know I mean, <laughs> if you were, if you're someone new enough to so overpack you, you know, you may just get rid of all your tools as half. Um, that was one of the thoughts, just a random thought that I had on the way.
0: So um, did you overpack? Did you did you
2: have to well, mail stuff back? Uh, yeah, well, it, actually, I, no. Yes and no. The the one place we overpacked was we thought we would possibly be doing more camping than we did. And we we camped one night of all the nights. Well, let's say, I, I, I wanted to ask you did. about that. So
0: the, yeah. you were, sort of had an open plan, camping in, staying in hotels. It was just figured out yeah. as you go. But yep. it was,
1: you know, 100 plus heat index. It would be, um, so I don't know, what is that? You know, 37. Celsius um every day nights were warm it camping was less
2: appealing yeah and, and, and just to get started early enough in the morning so if i had to do it again i think i would have fully committed probably to the hotel and then we could have gotten rid of well half of our stuff probably but but beforehand you just don't know
0: so do you feel like you were overloaded no no
2: since you know we do winter fat bike camping, also, so where we have to load all our gear in the winter on the on the bicycles, um, and so with that, I think we're relatively capable at getting stuff packed down. So, so mm-hmm. no, I don't. I think I was pretty proud of how we packed. How about you? Heath? Yeah, no, I think we we did well. One thing that I had great hope for
1: is I bought a battery powered rechargeable fan, <laughs> thinking about sleeping in our tent at night. <laughs> And and I thought this is going to make it special. <laughs> Turns out I used it to dry socks in the hotel room, so so it got used.
0: <laughs> a battery operated fan, boy, I, I've heard some weird things that people take with them, but I think you might have just topped the list right there—the battery operated fan. Well, that's you know, interesting.
1: I I remember a bicycle trip where it was you know hundred plus degree heat index. It didn't cool down at night. Laying in a tent, thinking, oh, I could. And that fan would have made all the difference. Um, So it was small, but it
2: helped dry socks. You know, one of the things I did before the trip that really proved useful and also during the trip was um, while researching the trip, if I ever found a a spot or a little uh, restaurant we wanted to eat or a a mound, just dropping a pin on Google uh, Maps there with a little note on it was fantastic because then when I kind of looked ahead to the 300 miles we had in the day, I could just see those little flags or notes and just kind of see ahead. What, what we possibly may want to hit. And so it, it, it allowed us to hit the things we wanted to, but also not have to actually schedule where we're going to end up that night Mm
0: -hmm. at all.
2: Also it it gave a lot of flexibility while letting us go where we wanted to see the things we wanted to see.
0: So Jared, you're very much into planning. Knowing what you're coming up to, doing as much research as you can in advance. I mean, you mentioned about looking at videos and there's several indications you've given that um, you'd like to know what's planned.
2: Um, not so much like I need to know the future, but rather I know I want to know all the options so I can maximize my experience. I guess mm. if that makes sense. But I'm very okay with it being flexible once we're there. I just don't want to, um, you know, drive by a mound without knowing, you know, that we have driven by it.
0: How How are you in in that sense, Heath?
1: Well, Jared and I work well together because we understand the flexibility is required. Nobody dug their heels in. You know, if I really want to see something, Jared would say, sure. And if he did, I'd say, sure. Um, and so we, we did have a general plan, but we left room for serendipity. Um, one, you know, thing that we were getting kind of tired and we pulled off for, and we needed gas well, we happened to be, I think it was Anamosa, Iowa. Well, we happened to pull off at the exit for the National Motorcycle Museum that uh. that had um, Peter Fonda's bike from Easy Rider and Dennis Hopper's bike. And it was a super cool thing that we're glad that we saw, but we didn't know that it was there. And so we did spend, what, a couple hours hanging out there. So we had a schedule, but we weren't, or I wouldn't say a schedule. We had a general plan, but we weren't afraid to deviate from it at any point.
0: Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? And I like the way you said it left room for serendipity because that, that is so important. Because if you're if you're so rigid for your time and your distance and your hotels are booked and everything, you just have to go buy that stuff. And then all it is is I wish I had of, I wish I did, you know, um, afterwards when you're thinking about back in time. But you're, you're probably better off to go less distance and, and explore more.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, We did ride up on the um, levee until we realized after about a mile that that was very illegal.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We weren't supposed to tell anyone.
2: It's just between us.
0: And and you you figured this out on your own without somebody stopping you and giving you a ticket to let you know it's illegal. Uh,
2: There was a very uh, angry sign, I believe, that we saw (laughs) that Uh. made it clear.
1: (laughs) But the sign was when we... Well, there was no sign when we got we on got the levee. The yeah, exactly. Right.
0: Well, don't feel bad. I mean, they put a sign there because others have come before you on the yes. same path, right? So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what other things did you guys learn on this trip? I mean, it's a relatively short trip and, you know, in the, in the big scheme of things, 11 days, good chunk of miles, 3,400 miles, 5,500 kilometers. What other sort of things did you learn on this trip that that um, may benefit others to hear? Hmm. Um
2: I, I, you know, I really valued our prep work ahead of time. Just, you know, I, it's not a groundbreaking thing, but having new tires and an oil change and and making sure all your all your parts are working right in the machine really added a lot of uh, or reduced a lot of stress on the trip. I think that
0: was big. Because um, other than the tire it, it, repair, you guys didn't have any issues.
2: I, I, uh, one, my battery started to die, mm. and and that's the one thing I. I Probably, if I was smarter, I would have replaced before we left. But that was it. Yeah. Yep. On the whole thing. So, um, um, I think using Google to put a bunch of pins down just so that you kind of see what's coming. So it gives you ultimate flexibility of where you start and stop the day. But you also have knowledge of what's coming. Was was really really useful.
0: Yeah, I like that because you're not really setting your route out. What you're saying is those are the possibilities. You know, there's this here and that here, and you can pretty much stop at any point. What do you have this on your cell phone?
2: Um, yeah yep yep but I mean you can drop those pins you know on with you, you, through your Google account you can drop it um, you know whatever device you happen to be using mm-hmm. and then and then I also use that for um for you know where we stopped at night or if we you know had a, a a nice lunch or or whatever I would drop a pin there and just put a little note so now if I'm ever in that area uh, again, I will have those pins and notes and I'll kind of know. Um, this place is great to eat.
0: Right. And then in the research, though, that you were doing when you were dropping the pins originally before you yeah. went, um, that also gives you the lay of the land or at least a little bit of it, you know, so you, you sort of have an idea of what's what's around you.
2: Yep, completely. And I tried to make it so that we would have about, I didn't fully succeed, but my goal was sort of a, a mound a day um, to hit or a mound site a day and or maybe some cool restaurant, uh, um, you know, or or place to eat.
0: Are the mounds marked out? Like, is there somewhere online where you could find all the all the mounds and mark them um,
2: out? Yes, yes, and no. I don't think you could. I, I I don't think there's just one site for it. But if you just look, if someone just was to Google, you know, um, you know, mound culture, Mississippian mound culture, um, my guess is they'd find more than they would, you know, all they would want.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You will find maps with hundreds
2: of sites. Yeah.
0: And Heath, how about you? Uh, any any thoughts on, on things that you learned that would help others on this trip?
1: Um, you know, just technology is amazing. And and Jared really actually taught me more about technology from booking a hotel to finding information. Things are so much easier and there's so much information available. Um, so so that's great. But you know, one of my kind of big takeaways, without sounding too, I don't know, too poetic, but, you know, traveling for me, it's kind of like sticking your foot in the water so that you can imagine what swimming would be like. We're certainly no expert on these mountain cultures on, you know, the Southern food on what it's like to live in Cairo, Illinois. But by traveling there, it really gives me some idea on what it might be like. And I think that helps me build some empathy towards other people and other places and other situations. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, have you guys done uh, other bike trips other than this one, uh, long trips or, or trips equal to this or better bigger rather?
2: Not bigger. If some years ago, we, uh, you know, circled Lake Superior. Um, that was sort of our first dip into uh motorcycle touring.
0: Mm-hmm. And does this trip make you think of longer trips or, or does it change your yeah. sort of outlook on that?
2: A little. uh, Yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, while thinking about um, this interview, even I was, you know, I was thinking of what, what is the place I want to really, really go next. And um, we grew up in the Fargo Moorhead area, which is south of Winnipeg. um, And the Red River is there. Um, And I would love to follow the Red River north, you know, up to Lake Winnipeg. And possibly, you know, uh, I have no idea if you could even take it up to Towards the, um, Hudson's Bay. Yeah. Hudson Bay up there. But just going that direction, following the red river that we grew up on North is also an idea.
1: That sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Yeah.
2: It's a plan.
0: (laughs) Plans laid just like that. What do you find that you get out of a, a trip that's 11 days long or, or this many kilometers going into the area that you did that you don't get on a shorter trip?
2: Well, I sort of got into the, the, the uh, trip blur, I guess I could call it where I, after a while I kind of, you know, the days sort of start to blur together a bit and, and even like what state I'm in sort of blurs a little bit. Um, And I'm not saying that's even good or bad, but um, that's definitely something I wouldn't have gotten on just a, you know, weekend trip or something. Um, I just feel like I'm emerged in the trip more than um, going to the trip.
1: Jared, you had talked about, we were talking after the trip, and you had talked about the idea of, in certain situations, it's good to just sort of make your world small. And, you know, when we're on the motorcycle trip, we're, we're worried mm-hmm. about gas, we're worried about food, we're worried about lodging. And, and so in some ways, we did make our world very small. Mm-hmm. But, but kind of the flip side of that was, maybe because my world was small, I was able to imagine big. You know, I, I, I didn't have to think about some of the other things that are normally in my daily life that occupy time and space. I was able to think about the ancient cultures, about um, barbecue sauces in Memphis versus St. Louis, whatever it was. Um, and I think that that smallness of the world that helps you think big um, meant something to me.
0: What was the reference from, uh, what was Jared talking about when you were saying about um, making the world uh, small sometimes, is, is that you should do it well, or something?
1: Well, we were actually talking about life in prison. And I said, oh, I don't know if I would ever want to spend life in prison. You know? and Jared <laughs> If you would said, ever want to? <laughs> no, well, wait. As opposed to maybe a, a, a death penalty. Oh, I see what you're saying. And, okay. and Jared was like, oh, no way. I would totally want to live. I'd just make my world small. <laughs> And, and still enjoy it. And, and I think the ability to find joy in that, you know, makes Jared a good person to travel with. I guess if you can find <laughs> joy
2: in life in prison, Jared, you're got a good outlook on That's life. so yeah. true,
0: isn't it? I
2: I don't know if prison is necessary for the, for the, for the idea, but, but no, I, I think you can, you can, uh, you can find joy in almost anything if you're, you know, want to adjust your perspective. So.
0: Well, well, my take on that, Jared, is that like, I, I, I think about this a fair bit now with the way the world is nowadays, how interconnected we are with the internet and how we see, you know, news about from some tiny village in some place that we've never heard of before. And yet we get the news anyway. So we're sort of bombarded on a daily basis mm. and a lot of it negativity. It can become overwhelming. It, it can it can even taint the way you, you see things and the way you feel about your, your place in the world. So I mean, I sort of relate to what you're saying about making the world small, you know, and maybe that's something that maybe that's part of the love of motorcycles that we all have is that in a way we're doing that each time we get on our bike. We, um, you know, Heath, you mentioned about, you know, making life simpler. And I think that's very true. A lot of people relate to that on trips. You make your life simple because it becomes about you and your motorcycle. And where are you going to go today? You know, what, what am I going to accomplish on my bike today? And it is very simple,
2: and I agree. and I, You know, and sometimes when I think about it, it's not a valid motorcycle trip unless you're, you know, um, circling the continent of Africa or something. But the reality is, I think most people can stay very close to home and find amazing things if you just are willing to, you know, look deeper in this in the smaller area
0: that you have. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And I mean, I think a lot of people are going to be doing that. And, and really, the reality is there are a small group of people that manage to travel the world for these extended periods of time. And, and that's great. And even they don't mostly, most of them don't do it forever. You know, they do it for a stint Mm -hmm. and, and that's what you hear about. And that's great. If you can do that, that's great. If it's what you want to do, but that's not the reality for most people. Most people are doing shorter trips like this. And, and it's amazing how much you can get from 11 days, 3,400 miles. It's, it's incredible how much you can get from that. And you haven't traveled the world.
2: No. And I would say that if we had stayed on interstate highways and, you know, just eaten at, uh, you know, um, chain restaurants, we wouldn't have gotten much out of the trip. But I think by going a bit deeper um, off of that main is where you really see the people and get the trip.
0: So having talked about that, maybe we should wrap this up with getting some key planning tips for shorter adventures like that, that work for you guys. And I know we've probably talked about most of it here now, but maybe we should just sort of reiterate, even if that's what it is. What do you think? I mean, Heath, let's start with you. Um, some key planning, or, or, or just jump in, Jared. Some key planning tips.
1: Well, one of the, the first things that I think of, uh, because of the state track meet, timing wasn't ideal. But that was the window of time that I had. And just when you've got the time, take it. And, you know, forget waiting for the ideal, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of good and just make it happen.
0: Yeah. That's, that's sort of a life thing too, isn't it? You know, you wait for everything to be perfect and you'll never do it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The the time is never just right. Not usually anyway.
2: And without Heath, I would be waiting for the perfect time (laughs) forever. (laughs)
0: And do all your trips that you guys do, do they all have a theme? Do you look for sort of auxiliary things to go rather than just saying we're going hiking this weekend or, or we're cycling or something?
2: And I don't, I don't think that we state it as such, but I think, um, you know, even during my day at work, I've always got a, a side thing I'm thinking about. You know, I think it's just sort of the a byproduct of the curiosity that I've always got something else I, I kind of want to learn about or attach, so. So, yes, but I don't think it's a a purposefully planned thing,
1: right, and I, I don't think in anything that we do, we would be um, too bound to the theme
2: mm-hmm.
1: to to, it, to let it have direction but not control everything.
2: yeah
0: now, you guys are in completely different spots now. You are each on your own trip again, yeah, what, what, what trip are you on, Jared, and where are you?
2: I, I'm just with a, a extended family trip at a uh, sort of a dude ranch. So, a dude <laughs> I ranch. A dude. I, I was I was riding a horse pushing cows around yesterday. So,
0: right. <laughs> Less now, adventure dude, and more family fun. A, a dude ranch is the, like that's sort of the ultimate touristy thing, right? I'm. It I is think I've been to one. Young. I think I was to one many years ago. Because, it's the reason I say I think because. This goes. is a long story, but and I won't give it to you, but uh, we had a publishing company many, many years ago when I was in my early 20s, and, and we went to um, new product launches. And I remember we went to this one, which was called the Vermejo Ranch, I believe it was in New Mexico for, uh, I think, Dodge. And, uh, it was a beautiful ranch, but it, um, they didn't really say anything. Like I didn't really pay much attention to the ranch, but I really had this feeling. It was sort of like that, that dude ranch thing where you went and you pretended to be a cowboy and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. But, but actually I, you know, I, I like to make fun of myself for being a tourist at times, but, um, but I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I really got to push cows around and had to, you know, find the little stragglers and I actually enjoyed myself. So but I think I have a a bit of a curse of uh, contentedness and that I can, I can find happiness in just about whatever I'm doing.
0: Wow. That's very nice. Heath, how about you? Where are you and what are you doing?
1: I'm in Red Lodge, Montana, which is just North of uh, Yellowstone park. And I'm hoping that later today I'm going to meet another guy and we're going to, he's got a, four-wheel drive motorhome that we're going to take up on hell-roaring plateau and then do some hiking and try to hit some peaks from the top of the plateau starting at 10,000 feet so that we don't have to walk all the way up.
0: Very nice. But
1: but I'm a little afraid because um, I haven't been exercising as much as I should. And 10,000 foot peaks or starting at 10,000 feet to hit peaks, I I worry a little bit about But. But he's a kind person. So if I'm too
2: slow, he'll be nice.
0: When you say you haven't been exercising quite as much, you mean you haven't done anything, right?
2: Yeah, he means he's fat, lazy, and old. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. just
0: leave it at that. I, I went <laughs> for a
1: two-hour walk yesterday to <laughs> acclimate myself
0: to the altitude here. Oh, and so you're doing Olympic standard. I see what yes, you're doing. It's <laughs> like- <laughs> it's, I often say that. you know, I'll say, I need to do this a little more. I think, no, it's a little more. I'm not doing it at all right now. <laughs> yes, yes. I've got to do that.
1: When when Jared and I were young, we used to park in the back of the parking lot and say, "We're not old, fat, and smoke," and we'll just walk in. Well, now when we park in the back of the parking lot, we say, "Well, we don't smoke."
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's Jared. It was great to meet you and get a, a bit of your story. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. It's you know,
1: and, and just Jim, thanks. You know, to you and Elizabeth for what you do because you know I, I'm also very much an avid listener yes. and just. The lessons to motorcycle riding are great, but really the applications to bigger life are super important, and I love to hear them.
2: Yeah, and Heath, I have to just add on to that. I, I don't know if we would have done the trip without your podcast, to be honest. I mean, that oh, that's nice. inspiration and so many lessons I've learned from it, so thank you so much.
0: Thank you both very much for, for that. Uh, that. That's very kind. Thank you. I was speaking with Heath Anderson and his brother, Jared Anderson. We've got some pictures from their adventure in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. well up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you for listening. Thank you very much. Hey, and if you're not doing it already, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. Drop by our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. We'd love to get you as a patron, monthly supporter, um, but we've got a bunch of different ways uh, that you can support. Drop by and have a look. And we would love to have you as well go by iTunes and give us a five-star rating or wherever you're finding a- the show. We'd appreciate that five-star rating. It helps others find the show. We also have another show called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. All of that's on our website. If you drop by adventureriderradio.com, you'll find out all kinds of things that we're doing. Anyway, it's time to get it there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Chris Birch at
1: chrisbirch.co.nz and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.